I'd like to talk to you tonight about uh, kindness, non-harming, and generosity, and what our practice looks like when we go from retreat back into our lives uh, outside of retreat. When I came to the, the ending night of my first long residential retreat like this, um, I was kind of shell-shocked by how intense it was. I never, I didn't know what to expect before I came. And so when I came to the last night, there was some excitement to try some of the things I'd learned at home. A lot of apprehension, thinking like, I don't know how I could possibly do this back in the, uh, my daily life. So some trepidation, um, some relief that I'd survived. It was sort of a big swirling mix then once we even practiced breaking silence, there was just a release of a lot of energy. And so I was swirling with a lot of things going on. But I, pretty sh- I was pretty sure I'd never do another one. <laughs> 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 and <clears throat> we had a practice at the time of making a big circle on the last day and everybody saying something into the circle. And I was still getting the rust out of my pipes, trying to like imagine talking again. And I started by saying, uh, whoever does this twice? <laughs> and I think I know, I think I've heard from some of you in your Q&A that you've done this twice or more. Like it's just, it's intense. So, but also it was, it was so incredibly honest that about a year later, I was like, that was difficult, but I'd never met something that was as honest. It wasn't about a whole belief system it was just supporting me to really have a much more direct, intimate encounter with myself, with sort of minimal indoctrination into a belief, just enough support that I could actually survive my own deepening of my self-experience. So I did try another one, and I had a little more faith, a little more orientation, said that I'd never do another one, <laughs> but not with as much conviction as the first time. <laughs> And then I began to see that these, um, these retreats, for me, they were very difficult while they were happening. But it was after the retreat that really proved, uh, really validated the amount of work that I'd put in. So I gave you that image earlier that we're all like boats on a harbor and the tide has been sort of coming in for these many days together. But you can't feel the tide coming in. It's like you can't watch the hour hand of a clock move. And it's surely moving, and the tide is surely rolling in. And so some of what you'll experience is already as you talk, you can feel that something has happened. And then as you drive off campus tomorrow, very slowly, (laughs) you'll feel like, whoa, five miles an hour is faster than I've gone in nine days. That's a lot. There have been people who have been pulled over by the police for driving too slow. (laughs) Officer, was I speeding? No. (laughs) That's not your problem. (laughs) This one guy said he went in to get a candy bar. He was just reaching and looking. (laughs) I'm choosing my food. No one prepared it for me. And as a... You know, nine days are nine actual days of our life, so they are important. And I've noticed that retreat days um, can have a certain um, meaningfulness to them. I mean, we're really intimate with ourselves. 
And yet they end up being nine days, or this particular retreat, nine days. And so what's fascinating, and what I really wish we could all do, is meet, meet in a month and just talk about what the next month was like. Having done this for nine days, then what did you learn when you went home? And the thing is, just like you, you don't know what they'll serve for breakfast tomorrow, you actually don't know what's going to happen over the next month. You've feared it, you've planned it, you've replanned it, re-feared it, you've hoped it, you've dreamed it, <laughs> you've rehearsed it. And all the le- lectures I had to my family on my first retreat, not one of them happened. <laughs> but I really got in there with the wordsmithing to get everything <laughs> just right. And not one of them happened. But more incredible things happened. So I'm excited for you to just know that's going to happen, to know with faith what you're uh, heading into. And I would encourage you not to know. I would encourage you, it's strong, there are strong compulsions in us to plan and try to um, help ourselves with um, this futurizing and trying to get things right. And what you've learned on this retreat and what you keep learning on retreat is that the, there's a power to just being intimate with the present and finding you can navigate the present. And when the future comes, it's a present. So you're navigating it. You don't have to do so much future steering that a lot of things get solved by your presence and that ability to actually feel what's happening and see what's happening. And that was what I didn't know after my first couple of retreats, that I could trust that. So I went into planning mode and tried to preserve the retreat and um, make plans around that, but nothing like I planned actually happened. And then there were beautiful surprises. Um, So I'm excited for you to know that those surprises are coming. One of the things that happened after my first metro retreat that was just jaw-dropping for me was um, I came out to visit some friends here in Berkeley from the East Coast. I was coming down from the Northwest, Portland, Seattle. And I really wasn't an urban guy. This is not my thing. Too much concrete, too much traffic, too many people, not enough trees. Um, But there were a lot of great teachers here and practices here and community here. So I was considering a time living in the Bay Area but already I had a bit of an attitude that it was just too big and too much concrete. So I was in my friend's house and I walked up to this hillside in Berkeley and I was doing my loving kindness practices and I sat down and actually could see the entire Bay Area. I didn't know that when I turned around I could see the Golden Gate Bridge, I could see the Bay Bridge, I could see San Francisco and Mount Tam. It was just a beautiful panorama. And I had been working hard to imagine all beings, and that was laborious, but suddenly there were two million beings right in front of me, and I didn't have to produce an image. I was like, wow, 200 million, I mean, two million people, and I can see them, I can see all the buildings, I can see all the traffic, and I can love two million people just sitting here, and it's an urban environment. I'm not looking, oh, look at all the, the cars and the traffic and the country, which is sort of my normal pattern. But I was looking and I was like, wow, may all of you be happy. That's new for me. That's beautiful. And I sat there, all beings, all beings. Let's get specific. That white car. <laughs> you don't know it, but somebody has just spent nine days producing so much momentum that as you drive through, there's some strange guy wishing you well, very specifically, to that white car. Hell, let's get all the cars heading north. 
<laughs> all the cars going south and like everybody in San Francisco and it's like, wow, this is a new heart. I just had no idea that my heart would have openings like that. Really unpredicted, not part of my plan, but so much more beautiful than I had anticipated. And it wasn't only beautiful, you know, you feel the world more and so you feel the parts of the world that are in pain. But I also noticed I had more capacity to steady myself and actually feel the pain of what was happening before I reacted. That was also new. So you're going to discover things. Um, and it's really beautiful after retreat. Also, like after traveling, you're just not in your normal habits. And so you get to discover your world um, with the things that we've developed here. So I'm excited for you to see what that will be. And then you can, there, there will be some advice maybe we'll give tomorrow about being a little bit cautious, not overly ambitious, to live out all your grand plans. So there is a, a sense of, you know, don't, don't be too um, cavalier about how awake you are and how tender you are after a retreat. But nor do you have to hide, nor do you have to be uh, overly protective. Like I, I told a story that after some of these loving-kindness retreats, without knowing I shouldn't have done it, I planned to go to work the next day. And I would walk into this crisis shelter, and I would walk up the steps like, this is not going to be good. <laughs> I mean, I just am feeling too much. And I'm used to walking in there with more of my like, game face on to kind of like deal with the intensity. And yet I found that there were capacities right in the middle of that intensive environment because I had momentum from the retreat. Never would have guessed it. So all my plans didn't make sense because what was actually happening was presence, connection. I had phrases to support me. I had intuition. I had momentum. And it really taught me about what I had done. It taught me how high the tide had risen to actually go into life again and be somewhat courageous about it. One part gentle, one part courageous to really trust that you've developed something here. Beautiful. And then in about a month, <clears throat> your mind and heart will look like how you've used them. So if you carry the momentum through and you go back to your ordinary life, some of the ordinary habits do come back. And I used to have some grief around that. Like I worked so hard to be free of them, but they came back. But I could see them with more perspective. That's another learning, is that you go back into your life and some of the habits come up that have been quiet on the second half of the retreat. But then you can see them with some contrast, what parts of your habits are already beautiful and what parts were more painful than you realized and maybe needed to be addressed. So that's a whole other learning when you go back home and watch your uh, ordinary habits of how you get through a day come back. And you can't really explore that in retreat. So you are somewhat because the mind has habits. But when you actually go deep into your life, go back to your house and talk to your roommates or partners or children, go to work and actually interact with people, walk around, you're going to expose yourself a lot more. But you have this momentum of, of presence and kindness to do that self-awareness practice. So that's why there's also a very deep, rich learning after retreats. In some ways, you can't learn those things on retreat. So the integration is beautiful. But one thing that doesn't happen is you really can't live this way out in the world. It's, very, it's just not possible. Our lives don't look like this. I mean, if your life looks like this, you can raise your hand. You're probably living in a retreat center. <laughs> 
or you're a, a closeted monastic, you know, you wear lay clothes, but secretly <laughs> you do 45 minutes of sitting, alternating with walking, and somebody else cooks your meals for you. So <clears throat> when we leave this type of uh, environment, this type of uh, powerful, steady training that can build this type of momentum, of course things will change. And we can either cling to what we've developed here. We can't put a handle on it and package it up and bring it home with us and hold on to it. We can't cling to it. Um, nor should we abandon it, neglect it. But watch the momentum carry through into life and then integrate. And then in about a month, depending on what your lifestyle looks like, your heart and mind will take up those patterns again. Integrate it in with these nine days, but also whatever you do next. And that will show you what your lifestyle is. It will show you some of the beauty of your lifestyle because you have beautiful habits of heart and mind. It also show you like maybe there are some life choices about lifestyle that might need to shift because if your mind looks haggard and tired and overwhelmed in a month, that might say something about your current lifestyle. And a lot of us have very speedy lifestyles that feel like they're speeding up more and more from when we were younger. It feels like our culture is more stimulating. So we have to make choices around that. Unless our, we don't, uh, we're just going to take what society demands of us and then live ragged uh, if we're overstimulated. We'll talk a little bit more t- about tomorrow about how to have a daily practice in a supportive group if you want. After my first retreat, I didn't want those things. <laughs> I wanted to kind of just set sails and run. But um, when I began to appreciate what was happening on retreat, I wanted to integrate what had happened. And there are, there are um, great practices now available for a lot of people, things online, books, sitting groups, real people, um, your home practices that will help the momentum continue. But then again, in a month or two, it'll look like how you've used your heart and your mind. And so we do have to be careful about that. I sometimes took it for granted, like, oh my God, a child could do this. I will never go back to being busy and distracted. So I'll just go get busy and distracted and just trust it, I'll never go back. Why would I choose that? But the busyness began to agitate me again and began to make me my mind tired and too many things, not enough time collecting myself back again and restoring myself. So that's again what the power of having a daily practice is like. For many of us, <clears throat> because we can't, we can't really just sort of empty the heart and mind of all of its responsibilities and just rest in the present, our, our daily activity requires more interaction and action. Our minds do speed up a little bit. And so if you want to follow this tradition and these teachings, um, what often happens outside of retreat is that there are different practices a different way of holding oneself. And the way that you hold yourself um, is a much more attention to action, the actions you're taking in daily life and really connecting them to the heart. And so we, we just are a little bit more busy. And so because of that, it's the actions we undertake. And that's where these guidelines come in of uh, uh, being harmless and being generous, just to keep it simple. So that's what I want to talk about now is uh, the Pali word for kindness, as we've talked about, is metta. Um, the Pali word for developing a, a lifestyle and actions that are harmless, uh, we call that sila. 
S-I-L-A. And the Pali word for um, generous giving and generous sharing and really doing actions that take care of other beings. The Pali word for that is dana, and you probably heard that this afternoon, dana. That's what you get to explore, and that's what your practice will probably look like. And so it's good to kind of just, again, um, you could be a carrot in the crock pot and just keep living without getting too heady about it. But if you want to kind of support an understanding of what's happening, it's important to understand these other aspects. We have the loving-kindness practice and understanding. We've talked about that. But we haven't spent so much time specifically talking about the practices of sila, these practices of um, of being intentionally, clearly harmless, especially as we go back to our daily lives and maybe pick up old habits. We want to have a perception. What are these actions? What are my intentions behind these actions? And what are their outcomes? Do I have harming intentions? And then when you look at the action, did, even though my intentions were harmless, I caused harm because I didn't understand what was happening. So look, looking and scanning for how you might be participating in harm. And also looking and scanning to see if you're participating in prosperity, your own and other, other people, animals, environments. Are you participating in the prosperity? And that might be one way of thinking about the practice of dana. For a lot of people in Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka that practice this form of Buddhism, insight meditation, this Theravadan Buddhism, that's a lot of what they're practicing, what they're encouraged to practice, uh, sila and dana. So the gener- being generous of spirit and scanning their actions to be harmless. And it's a lot of what your practice will probably look like um, because it won't be this careful walking back and forth slowly and looking at the nuances of your mind, it'll be going to work and having to work on a computer or grab a quick lunch somewhere. And it's just, it's much more active than you can really do that micro scanning. So then you open, you sort of open your perspective more to just make sure that you're not participating in harm and that you are participating in, again, prosperity for yourself and others, the well-being of yourself and others. nice thing is if you actually do that and that becomes sort of a basis of your life, you scan for harm you might be causing and you scan for generosity you can participate in. When you come back to the next retreat, your heart and your mind look like that. Your heart and your mind will look like you've been practicing attunement to harm, attunement to well-being. And that's very supportive for going down deeper into your own heart and mind if you happen to do another retreat. And that's how they work together. A retreat like this, nine days, will give you a lot of um, interesting exploration of how you can be more generous. Um, Or at least aware of the well-being of others and looking for ways you might participate in that. And then much more sensitive to how you might have been harming people but just not knowing it because you weren't that sensitive. And now you actually will be much more sensitive so you'll see that when you go home. When I was, uh, after I'd done a few long retreats, three-month retreats, I really wanted to just give myself over to these practices. And so somewhere between that first retreat and then, I was like, this is actually very important to me, and I don't want to live unconsciously in my life. And three-month retreats are great, but there's still the other nine months of the year. (laughs) 
and I don't make headway during those nine months, I can kind of hold my ground. But how could I live much more convicted and have access to these practices? So um, I went with a friend of mine to Burma and we were just going to live in the monasteries with this possibility of ordaining. It was sort of part of my idealistic, op- you know, one of my options. If I liked the monastery, maybe I'll live there for the rest of my life. I don't know. And to live there for the rest of my life, maybe I'll ordain. I don't know. When I got there, I was inspired by the monks and the nuns and the lay people there, but saw the, the incredible dedication that the monastics had undertaken. And I was so moved that I did ordain there. It was an interesting story unto itself. Well, part of ordination is that you take this, the practices of um, non-harming to a, a really high degree. And instead of the five precepts we took at the beginning of the retreat, you have 227 precepts. But they're all really refinements. All the important aspects are really held in those five precepts, but you start to really look in detail and take vows not to tease people in a way that causes shame. That's one of them. Be careful of that. And how do you give and receive? And there's a lot of uh, ritual to make sure you're conscious about uh, taking on th- taking on gifts. And if you're giving something, how do you really release it in a clean way? So we can take these five precepts and get more and more sensitive to them, but part of the monastic training was these 227 precepts. And a lot of them didn't really apply if I was sitting and walking. So if I was just doing my practice like we do here, the 227 precepts were sort of um, not too relevant. Just making sure I didn't step on ants if I saw them, but for the most part, just sitting and walking. And the precepts really, um, these many trainings become much more active as soon as you start interacting with people, and especially when you leave the monastery and then it's not about these subtle nuances of heart and mind. It's really adhering to non-harming. And it's a whole training how not to cause harm. And if you start to really go through what these many precepts are guiding you in, um, they make it impossible to cause harm if you're really training them because they anticipate where harm comes from. And so they make you very mindful. So outside the monastery, it's the practice of this non-harming with these, um, these vows, these precepts. And as soon as you walk into the monastery, they don't, they're not so relevant because you go back into a secure environment and you go back into steady practice. And so this is just mirroring what we're all doing here on retreat. When we're on retreat, we took these five precepts in the beginning, but there's almost a trust that you, can, you should be aware of them, but just by being mindful and kind and present, you're probably not going to be causing that much harm. But as soon as you leave tomorrow, you have much more chance to not quite be as mindful and not quite be as present. And so you do start scanning. Is this action harming? Is there something greedy or harmful in my heart that I'm not considering the welfare of somebody else? And therefore this action um, is not aligned with kindness. That's the nice thing about having heightened loving-kindness practice, is that you really catch when the heart starts to drift out of kindness and starts to feel an old habit um, of selfishness. Or being cruel to yourself in order to help somebody, but you start exploring, wait, how do I take care of both of us in this situation? Because we're both important here. 
and reflecting upon old habits as they might arise. Then it's a very beautiful learning. And that mirrors again, as I was saying, what happens with monastics. Inside their monastery, it's usually other practices. But as soon as you start interacting, and maybe you saw that even with each other, as, you, as soon as you start interacting and breaking silence, then you have to be really careful about what you're saying, why you're saying what you're saying. And then you start noticing motivations that you get swept up in a fear or excitement. And then that sort of takes over what you're saying. And you have to catch that. So that's your practice ahead. Another beautiful thing about um, practicing in the, the monasteries um, in Burma is that you are getting a lot of these teachings all the time. And we don't get them so much in our daily life. You can now, um, there, I know people that download Dharma talks from all over the world and just keep listening to them. So they do get a steady stream and read Dharma books. So you do get a steady stream that's more available. But if you're in a training community in Burma, you're hearing a lot of these teachings all the time and being held accountable to them. So the chant we've been doing um, called the Karyana uh, Metta Sutta, we did the first um, uh, many nights of the retreat. The Burmese people will memorize this and then they'll go to pagodas and they'll chant it and little babies will grow up hearing it being chanted and so you will never not know a time where this wasn't kind of around your life. You'll hear it chanted a lot. This is a very um, common chant. They chant it in Pali and they might chant it in Burmese. And so if it's around, then these phrases are influencing you. And so you would have this opening phrase, this is, should, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. And so it should be done. And if you have known that your whole life, there's an influence where you feel this calling. If you want to be skilled in goodness and know the path of peace. To hear this line, uh, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings. To grow up and have that chanted and around you and then to be a young monastic and learning to chant this over and over and saying it every morning, that would sort of trickle in and inform you. And it's one of the beautiful parts. I go to Burma almost every winter and sometimes bring students with me to just see the Burmese culture and see what it's like to be in a Dharma culture and to have these reflections. Um, and then they integrate as you're walking around as you're going to the market for shopping or your home or whatever you're doing, you have this chant informing you in the background, but steadily. And it, it has influenced a lot of people. Now they'll know these phrases, just like we might know phrases from our own spiritual traditions that we grew up with. So there's this uh, general attunement to kindness, this general attunement to non-harming, and a general attunement to generosity, and taking interest in the welfare of yourself and others. And that can just be sort of a uh, 
um, a resting place as you're going through life or a returning place and how you're feeling your way through life. Are these actions kind? Is there any harm being cultivated? Am I acting on harmful intentions? Or again, if my intentions aren't harmful but still harm was caused, maybe I didn't fully understand what was happening. And then to keep your heart open for the welfare of yourself and others and notice how you are participating in that and how you're not participating in that. And sometimes it's good to have a very, just a general open approach because life is so varied so that you're just sort of um, keeping a, um, yeah, not such a structured practice, but a, a general goodwill and a general non-harming. And then you find as you're going through life, you begin to flag when you might be causing harm or you pick up when you're causing harm or participating in harm or participating in the welfare of others. You can also take on specific trainings. And these five precepts that we took in the very beginning of the retreat that helped create some of the safety of the retreat, um, that becomes um, part of your intensive training if you really want it, to how to do uh, this skillful attunement, this ethical attunement back at home. And so we have these five precepts and you can train in them and make them as um, compelling for you as you were willing to make sitting and walking here. And so you can uh, take vows to yourself and to the world that you will practice and learn to follow these five precepts. And no one gets them perfect, but the intention can be there to really take them seriously and not just do them as a rote exercise, but taking on these five precepts. And then it's not general non-harming, it's specific. And so you're really looking Making, you're passing your actions through and your motivations through these five specific uh, precepts. That's a practice of sila. That's a practice of this um, non-harming. To look and make sure that you're not causing harm. And when you start looking, you see it all over the place. It's one of the sort of the, sort of the harsh um, parts of getting more mindful and more kind is you see there's a lot of unconsciousness in yourself and others. And you can see that you just, a certain way you communicated was harmful or the way that you participated with, um, with somebody was not the cleanest motivation. And you start picking up on that and you're like, oh wow, there are little harms that I'm doing all day long. So I have to kind of put some effort into how not to harm. You can also take these five precepts to the opposite direction and they become practices of generosity. So that's what I'd like to go into. There are five of these precepts, not 227, but five. And if you, if you want one, be kind. But if you want to be specific about it, how to be kind and not harm. The first uh, precept is about not causing physical harm to the point of actually not killing or actually physically harming yourself or any other being. So... Maybe that's a kind of like a sweet one and after nine days of loving kindness that feels very intuitive. No, I would never want to cause harm. But if you tune into it, it's actually tricky not to cause harm. Now I'd like to point out some places we need to pay attention. One is on fragile beings that were, were big to a lot of beings and so it's easy to cause harm. And I notice every morning that I 
step into the shower and turn the water on, I just have to do a little insect scan and a spider scan because every about third day there's some little bug that can't, you know, fell in and can't climb up the walls and would just be washed down the drain. And so as a method practice, it's fun. It's actually beautiful. As just, if it's sila by itself, it's like, okay, don't kill the bug. That's not a good thing to do. But if it's actually connected to metta, it's like, oh, a little bug. I'm on your side. Let's start the day not hurting you, specifically. And scooping it out, it's like, okay. I don't know what happened the rest of the day, but at least I, I was there for that one little spider. <laughs> but then all the spiders building webs around my house. It's like, okay. Mm. <laughs> how do I peacefully coexist with all of you? That's tricky. I definitely can't let you just build spider webs and collect dust. I don't want to harm you either. So it's like scooting them all outside. And so that's sort of insect, uh, tuning into that. And if you tune into that as just you shouldn't cause harm, it's a burden. But after loving kindness practice, it's sweet not to cause harm. And you realize it was just sort of clumsiness and kind of being dull in your life, that you just can't be bothered, so you're just gonna break down the spider's web, and I don't care about the spider, I wish it well, but I'm not gonna try that hard. We're saying, no, 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 I'm gonna actually be specific, not cause the spider harm. So it can be that tender, and just not causing physical harm around these smaller insects. Hopefully not causing harm to the beings that are about our size, not uh, hitting them, poking them, actually hurting our fellow humans, other animals. And it also trickles out where it begins to touch complicated issues, much more um, complex. And there may be no easy answer, but your heart starts to feel into um, ways that we live on the planet and way our lifestyle is causing harm. So driving a car, it causes harm to the environment even the electric cars, there's a, there's a question about that because they usually run on coal-fired plants unless there's some renewable energy causing, generating electricity. So that's one thing you have to feel into. It's not easy, there's no solution, but then after a while you care enough that you might make different choices. And how we take in our food, and what type of food do we take in? And do we pay more for organic food knowing the impact that has the environment. And what if you don't have organic food nearby? What if you can't afford it? That becomes a whole ethical sensitivity of the heart. And then there's all our social structures. And we, I've talked a little bit about that and we've pointed at that. Um, where you begin to feel that you're participating in a social, with uh, socialized patterns that tend to prefer um, men to women, tend to prefer white people to people of color, tend to prefer straight people to people who are not just in that binary heterosexuality, tend to prefer um, wealthy people over people who don't have access to as much money or resources, tend to prefer people who look a certain way, tend to prefer people who have more physical ability than others. And so as your heart opens, you can feel yourself participating in this. You know, if that's an interest of yours and you begin to open your heart, and then these solutions are not obvious, but you care, and by caring you might learn how you can stop participating and do harm reduction 
um, on a much larger scale. So there's the very refined momentary about the fragility of these spiders or insects that you live with. There's the personal interactions you're having. Then there's this larger scale harm that might be caused, where it's real physical harm. And your participation is a tiny little piece of it, and yet you're still lightly but steadily participating. I didn't physically harm somebody, but I'm part of a system that I'm not challenging, that prefers uh, white skin or maleness. So then I have to work not to participate in that. That's where this one precept can go up and down from the very small to the very large. There's attuning your heart to that, so your heart is uh, caring. It might get overwhelmed, and then you calm yourself down, regroup, and then see there's an option where you didn't notice one before. You grow your capacities, and then you learn over time. How can I reduce harm with just this first precept? You can then turn the precept in the positive direction. How can I actually promote well-being? How can I actually participate where I'm not just not causing harm, but I'm taking interest as a generosity. This word dana, how can I participate that promotes health and well-being for myself and others? How can I promote the health and well-being of the environment around me and all the beings within it? And what questions arise around that? And so maybe that is not just don't cause harm by eating organic food. You're actually promoting well-being if you eat organic food. And it's just not about not harming. It's actually also about participating in a way that you're really enjoying um, and taking some real deep heartfelt uh, joy in how you're um, promoting well-being through generosity. The second precept about not stealing, that's the most, most coarse form of it, not taking what isn't offered to you. Tuning into that, tuning into the, the anxiety you can cause yourself and others if you're um, misusing resources. And as a precept, you can take it on, yes, I don't want to cause harm. Connect it with loving kindness, and the heart doesn't want to cause harm. It wants to learn about how it might be causing other people pain and suffering around taking things that they care about or misusing things. And it can be on the very small scale, and it can be on the very large scale. And how do we tune into how we're using resources and promote well-being? How can we share resources? Not just reduce harm, but how can we look at the same area and see how do we promote well-being? And so one thing is if we all take the precept not to misuse or take other people's stuff, not only we're we reducing the harm, but we're engendering trust. And that creates a type of relief, a collective relief, and that allows for a type of well-being so we don't have to be anxious in the back of our mind. If someone actually uh, stole some of the things that you had here, it'd be very hard to have a feeling of trust. And hopefully that didn't happen by not happening, you can relax around that issue. And so the same precept not only doesn't cause harm, it can engender and start to promote uh, well-being, which is the beautiful part of this ethical attunement, not just not causing harm, but by not causing harm, you're also promoting the, the well-being of yourself and others.
And then what does that look like when you go home? How would that particular precept come into play? I mean, some of the, the maybe the sillier examples are about, um, depending on who you live with and what your agreements are about food. <laughs> you know, I, I now tell my housemates when I borrowed food from them, whereas my old mind is like, they won't know, they have so much. But it's just that, it's, and then I have to live with a little bit of that unease because I wasn't holding integrity in the relationship. And often when I ask, people are very happy that I ask and engenders trust to ask before I borrow things. And to be careful if I borrow something to make sure it gets back to somebody and it allows integrity in that relationship and people feel seen and respected by how you're um, working with uh, their property, your property, maybe shared resources. Again, you can look at <clears throat> this on a very large scale and how are we coming by our resources? Are we taking resources from other parts of the world and causing suffering there for our well-being? And are we causing harm? And that, get, that starts to get, again, complicated. Love my uh, iPhone, but the, um, the lithium in the lithium-ion battery comes from these mines in uh, Central America. And when you see the pictures of it, they're not doing a lot of environmental protection while they're mining. And so then that becomes an issue where my heart doesn't know what to do. You know, I've tried not participating, and yet then I don't participate in my culture. But if I participate, then I'm participating in the harm of the environment. And so what you'll see people do is they'll challenge those systems. You'll see really beautifully committed activists go in and really uh, challenge unconscious corporate behavior and try to challenge the harm that's being done and see if there's a way that there actually is positive economy. How do you promote the well-being all around the world? It's not just stopping uh, corporate greed or um, systems that are not respectful, but can you build an economy that is that does share prosperity and promote prosperity? And that's a new way of thinking. And there are people who are trying to address harmful patterns and turn them into things that promote uh, well-being. It's not a simple solution and you still have to feel into them and you still have to learn as you go. But then you're participating in the well-being um, locally and afar. And that's looking at this one precept and one possible consequence of this precept. There are times when I <clears throat> head in these directions and my heart can really feel it and loves actually opening up to these things. And then there are times when I feel into them and I get overwhelmed. It's just there's, the world is too complicated, too many moving pieces, and I don't know how not to cause harm. In that overwhelmed place, I'm usually not that productive. And so then I, I calm my attention down, feel my body again, and I build capacity first by resting and then lifting my heart up again and I renew the question. And maybe I can do that in a quick turnaround. If I'm in a dialogue with somebody, I feel overwhelmed by the consequences of my actions. And maybe I need to do a whole nine day retreat or longer to really unplug, rest, reorient and rise back up and into the world. 
and find that there's many more things I can do because I've actually taken the time to regroup. So that's a beautiful thing about a retreat and it's a beautiful thing about a daily practice. It's a beautiful thing about not being too overextended in daily life because then we feel overwhelmed and then we can't uh, see what's happening, we can't choose differently because we just feel so incredibly spread thin. So knowing how to regroup, quiet down, restore and lift back up and find that, yeah, I actually do a lot better when I do that. That can happen again on retreat or one of the important things about having a daily practice so that you are nourishing the heart so it can live up to your ideals and your values. The third precept <clears throat> is around not harming people around sexual desire and sexual activity. And sexuality is, um, is such an incredible range of human experience. In, in this realm of human sexuality, there is uh, incredible connections, incredible beauties, and it's where uh, we're all born from. So sexuality has this possibility of being quite beautiful. Again, it made more beautiful by being conscious around it, and being conscious around the power of it and all the ways that people can connect beautifully, but also ways that it's so powerful that we're not often conscious around it. And not being conscious of it, it may be more powerful than we're really realizing. And we might be taken over by it, taken over by delusions of the fantasies that come or ways that we haven't really understood the trust somebody has put in us through a, a sexual or romantic connection. And then the amount of hurt that comes when we're not conscious around uh, our sexual activity, our sexual desire. It's so powerful that some monastic communities just say, zero it out. We're just <laughs> celibacy. That stuff is so intense that our solution is just to, let's just worry about other stuff. Let's calm that down, find other ways to be happy, other ways to connect. What I loved about the year I was a monk is that it was my mission to love intimately every being. And when I would walk around Burma as a monk, everybody kind of expected that I would care for them. So people would approach me with this sort of assumed trust. And so I would meet people and I would care for them and trust them and all the animals. Like, well, you know, this is better than unconscious relationships I've been in. So the celibacy wasn't a shutting down of my heart. It was just using my heart in other ways to have intimacy and connection. And then after I disrobed, that question of should I carry that on even as a layperson, or now that that's not a requirement, what about sexual relationships? And can I be conscious within them? And it's a whole other thing that we don't practice here in retreat. But how do we bring consciousness into the fact that many of us do have sexual desire and sexual relationships? And how do you navigate them consciously with all the beauty and all the tenderness and all the possible hurt that can come in them as well? So it's a realm that we have to wake up in and to scan for where the harm might come in, the, the betrayal, the misattunement, sometimes the desires that take people over, and then they realize afterwards that they betrayed somebody. 
It's very powerful. And if you're going to participate in that part of your life, that's going to be an active part of your life. You have to raise your awareness. It's like you shouldn't drive a car at a speed you don't know how to drive. You're really putting people's lives in danger. So around sexuality, it's a very powerful force. And if we want to be sexually active, we have to be that conscious of how we might be causing harm. Then when you flip it around and you look at how can I promote welfare and well-being through these relationships. And there's romantic connection that's beautiful, there's sensual connection, there's sexual connection. And it can be a very beautiful part of your life. And maybe it does promote welfare in your intimate relationships. So the, the monks probably wouldn't agree with that. But they've been celibate since they were six. So I don't think they can, I don't, I don't think they know. Uh, <laughs> having been on both sides of the equation, I think I might have more experience than they do. <laughs> but in order to remain celibate, they often took very hard stances against it. Some of them would ordain in their 40s and they would have had um, sexual relationships before they became celibate. And maybe they'd have more to say on the topic um, than just sort of belief systems. But as lay people, you, all of you have different relationships to sexuality and different phases and chapters of your life. And, and the rule is really just to be conscious and see if what's moving through you and happening for you is really uh, understood and agreed to by the people around you if you're sec- being sexually active. And then, you know, my heart goes out to all the people that have been really harmed there. It's, uh, there are many, well, these precepts, I'm talking about them in sort of light ways, in some ways, but people really have been harmed. They've really been hurt, not just around sexuality, but the, the severe breakings of these precepts have really hurt people. And I know I've done it, and this wasn't conscious or capable in certain times of my life. So when I've really broken these precepts, I've really caused harm. And I don't do that anymore, or to a much less degree. And so it, uh, it behooves all of us. It puts little hooves on all of us. <laughs> You're behooved. It behooves you to, to, take, <laughs> to take these precepts uh, somewhat lightly so they don't become a burden, but, but sincerely. And again, that's where loving-kindness practice when I began doing the love is kindness practice, these precepts were not just um, dutiful obligations, but they really began to be expressions of my free heart. And they re- began to teach my heart how to be free, how to be conscious and where to be conscious. The fourth precept is around communication. And that's really how we talk to each other. And how we communicate through email or text. Um, any type of exchange like that. And some people take the fourth precept to even be internal talk and internal dialogue. How are we treating ourselves with our inner voice? And how are we communicating with others through body language, through actual things we say, you know, through all these different modes of communication. <clears throat> and there are many, many guidelines about what harm reduction looks like. Looking at your motivation behind your desire to speak, behind your desire to communicate. Why are you communicating? What are you communicating? One of our colleagues and teachers, Sylvia Bornstein, has a beautiful short little acronym, uh, WAIT, W-A-I-T. 
So before you speak, wait and go, why am I talking? <laughs> why am I talking? It just sort of, I just started, but wait, why am I talking? <laughs> oh, there's joy there, or there's something I want to say, or something I want to communicate. There's a fear there, there's a hope there. And it's like, oh, wow, why am I talking? I should know this. There, for the first five years of my practice, I could not be concurrently conscious and speak at the same time. The forces behind, once my started engaging in conversation, I would be mindful after the fact, but it was very hard to be mindful while it was occurring. And I thought, I'll never be mindful while I talk. It just, there are too many things going on, too many concerns, motivations, too many changes in the person and me, and everything is just too complicated. But slowly I began to dawn the capacity to um, be mindful when I was communicating with others. And especially after a loving kindness retreat, because I really had spent that time exploring the heart and getting very familiar with the heart, so I could tell where the heart was while it was talking. And I could see shifts in the heart around defensiveness or the sudden greedy desire for gain. I could see an opportunity or a manipulation coming or a deflection of honesty. So being mindful of the heart, being aware of the heart, was a, the, one of the best supports finally being conscious while I was communicating and making sure I'm not communicating harmfully. So the amount of uh, emails I wish I could have not send and the amount of repair work I've had to do after I sent something that seemed perfectly honest, perfectly you know, necessary, and then sent it and realized I was in a bad mood or I was triggered and then lashed out. And I re- read it, and I was like, yep, 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 every dagger, they need every single one. And I, don't know. I forgot one, here's one. <laughs> Press send, ah, the glory of righteousness. <laughs> ah, love it, love it. And then next day, like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. And then seeing the harm in the other person, and then having to clean up that. And like, wow, that's a lot of work for one send. But I just loved it for that moment of feeling that righteous. And I was blinded by my righteousness, my own harm, my own defensiveness. After a loving kindness retreat, hopefully those, those movements of heart get exposed. May I love all beings, but not you. And they're like, oh wait, all beings. Yeah, but not this one, not now, tomorrow, but right now. This is super important. It's like, yeah, why did I spend nine days trying to love all beings and then turn around and hate one specific being? You're almost there with all beings. You could get all beings minus one or all beings. Ooh, I'm so close to all beings. Mm. Mm, so close. <laughs> and then to pause before I send them. And that's usually a really good thing to do. And I'll make it complicated for you because sometimes we over edit. And sometimes we don't actually communicate when we need to. So there is a, there is a great skill in timeliness in giving more time to understand what you want to say before you say it, that's important. And sometimes you don't communicate honestly and quickly enough. And that's a whole counterbalance to waiting and understanding, is actually learning to speak up, especially when there's tension and conflict. So there's, oh, there's a lot more to say about this one particular um, precept. It tends to be the one that we're most likely to cause harm through very quickly, our communication. 
And uh, so it's good to heighten your awareness around that. And again, the loving kindness practice um, is one of the best aids I've seen to helping me with my uh, communication and not only stopping the harm, but then flipping it and causing beautiful uh, welfare and beauty between me and another, expressing my gratitude, expressing my appreciations, expressing where I'm struggling in a relationship with somebody, but they don't feel attacked and having a heart that can explore that with somebody. Um, I can promote the well-being and the welfare in them and me and in our relationship and engender more trust, more security, more intimacy, more discovery through communication. So silence kind of, again, we put sexuality quiet over here, we put communication quiet over here, and tomorrow (laughs) you can open those back up again. Um, You've already opened up the communication one. So looking at harm reduction, looking at ways we might be communicating in a ways that causes harm for ourselves or another, all the many ways that might happen. And then turning around and see if we're actually conscious of why we're talking, we might be able to promote the welfare and the well-being of someone else. And what if that's our motivation? It's quite beautiful, quite beautiful things get expressed when that's the heart's motivation. The fifth precept is uh, around not taking intoxicants and not taking substances that make your mind present that make your mind not present. (laughs) So helping your sobriety, helping your heart not be clouded or confused. Um, A lot of substances, the way they impact us is that they dampen our consciousness because it's hard to be conscious. They often don't promote consciousness like a retreat does. You know, a lot of people think that their drug habits promote a lot of consciousness, but it's usually pretty warped, a lot of the, the... the party drugs and whatnot, let alone alcohol, other substances. And so how do we reduce those substances and build the strength of heart to be sober and to be connected and have option around substance use and see if we're using substances consciously? And how do we promote and support sobriety so that we don't need substances That's a whole exploration, something to be conscious of. As a fifth precept, it's important that we take it as seriously as the others, but we just again want to scan, where's the harm in this activity? And for some people, um, a little bit of use doesn't cause harm and they prove that to themselves. For some people, even a little bit of use, they can see the harming in it and they don't participate. That's one of the things you get to explore after this retreat, being conscious around that. So those are five very tangible, specific ways that you can practice if you really want to take up a good practice. Because you know you can't live like we've been living out in daily life. You can live with the intentions, you can live with your heart's values, but we don't spend this much time in silence, walking back and forth quietly. And so we can't translate the form into our daily life as much, little bits, but not the whole thing. So then you take up these other practices and they really do reduce the suffering. They lend integrity to your life. They stop ways that we cause harm to ourselves and others, the regrets that we have, the way that certain relationships have been harmed. 
or in their flip side, through the dana, through the generosity, we can really promote our own welfare and others' welfare through these same five precepts. So I, uh, I wish you um, well in your exploration in these hours and days and weeks and months ahead of this retreat and really wish we could all reconvene and share notes of what the exploration was to be more conscious in our ordinary lives, in our daily lives. I sometimes had the image that for nine days I was pulling back an arrow in a bow and then the last day I was releasing the bow and releasing the arrow and just going back into life with all this momentum and seeing what would happen. And again, you just don't know. You're going to be so surprised by things you never thought would happen. And you're going to be in your ordinary life more consciously for a long time. And you get to learn from that. So I'm excited for you. I'm excited for what you're going to learn. Let's sit together a little bit and let that settle in through us. welcome you to get in touch with some inspiration, some sense of noble adventure that is dawning upon you as this retreat comes to a close. I want you to trust your heart, trust in going forward into the unknown and trust that your heart will find what it needs, it will explore, it will learn. And even mistakes are a part of our awakening. So we don't have to get it perfect, but we can be guided by clear intentions to be kinder, to enjoy the process of learning to harm less and to generate well-being. I invite your heart to enjoy that calling. And then one of the best ways to live into that vow, that aspiration, is to once again be loyal to and connected to this flow of present time experiences, your body, your heart, your mind. And one more time, gently calling it forward to kindness here and now. Keeping it simple, keeping it immediate.
and without forcing it, but with inviting it instead. Invite yourself to be present through however the rest of the evening plays out for you, a time of walking, maybe one more sitting with a last chanting together, one more evening to be in this tender quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.